Hey everybody, can you all hear me okay? So last time I was up here, you know, it was the middle of winter and I was like, okay, you know, I should try to look professional and presentable and I thought I'd put on like a nice button up and a sweater and I got up here and it's like with the lights, it's really hot. So today I'm like, okay, I need to remember, don't layer up, just, you know, wear like just a polo shirt, whatever, you should be good. And now the heater's running on its max, so once again, it's still really hot. But um, I'm really excited to be up here. Uh, this sermon has been on my heart a while. We've been discussing it in the men's group. And I'm really excited to share with all of you uh, just um, what God has been teaching me. And so before we begin, I just want to pray for this, uh, just this message today. And then we'll jump in. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time that we can gather, that we can uh, fellowship and learn from your word Lord, I pray that your spirit would just be working within us today, that we would be just open to what you are teaching us, what you are encouraging us in, and what you may be convicting us in. Lord, just continue to lead and equip us as a body of Christ today. In your name, amen. So, today we're going to be doing a full deep dive into Romans 12. Maybe not too deep, but we're going to cover the entire chapter. Now, before we begin, I do want to give a little bit of a background on just the entire structure of Romans. So, when we look at chapter 12, this serves as a pivot from Paul's teachings on God's plan of salvation in the first 11 chapters, and now he transitions to the application for the Christian in their new life. So when we talk about this, Paul has already made the case that our salvation, that our righteousness is only by God's grace. Jesus fulfilled the requirements of the law and God's standard of righteous living, and it is our faith in his sacrificial death that redeems us. So we must come to a point where we stop trying to do things in our own strength and realize that salvation is only through Jesus. It's not through an adherence to the Old Testament law. It's not through just being able to live a good life. We must stop striving and realize that it is only through God's grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, that we can be saved. If we do not understand that, then chapter 12 is just taught in vain. And so I encourage anyone listening to this today that if you have not placed your faith in Jesus, if you are not a Christian, just stop and consider what we are discussing today and just pray and repent of just your old way of living, knowing that God will show grace to all. So we, Paul now transitions into Romans 12, and he kicks off the chapter with an exhortation in verse 1. So in verse 1, it says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. So let's look at that phrase, therefore, in view of the mercies of God. I love that word, therefore, because it's, it's a great use in a logical statement. Because of A, therefore B. So Paul presents his case for God's mercy and grace in chapters 1 through 11. Therefore, he calls us to be a living sacrifice in chapter 12. Why is this important? He argues because this is our true spiritual worship. 
In Romans 6, 4, earlier in his letter, he states, Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. He continues to verse 6 of that same chapter. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. So these phrases, he says, newness of life, no longer enslaved to sin. When we repent of our sinful ways, when we repent of that old way of living, living according to the world, we become new spiritual creations. That new spiritual life is no longer a slave to sin because we have been redeemed by Jesus' life. So logically, it should follow that we, if, if we are no longer dead to sin, but we are alive to God in Christ Jesus, as Paul states in chapter 6, verse 11, therefore, we should be living for God. Yet, in this new life, as believers, we all are still tempted to stray and worship other things in our life, whether it's our money and careers, whether it's relationships, whether it's fitness, whether it's sex, entertainment, and so forth. We may not have a physical altar that we worship at, but our actions show that we make sacrifices to these false gods. So Paul says, be a living sacrifice. How do we do this? How do we make our lives a living sacrifice to God? Verse 2, this is the key. This is the key to the entire chapter. In verse 2, Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the central idea that drives the entire chapter, and we all must pay close attention to what we are called to do in order to see the resulting effects throughout this chapter. So at the point of salvation, we are transformed into a new spiritual creation. However, we still live out this life in our physical bodies, but our minds must now be transformed to this new way of living. We can no longer conform to the world and its methods and ideologies. We must allow the Holy Spirit to be working within us and bringing about this transformation in our life. And this is done through a new mindset. And this is tough because it's a daily surrender. It's a daily submission to the Holy Spirit working within us. And all too often, it's easy for us to make excuses. We say things like, Oh, well, you can't teach a dog new tricks. I've been, you know, I'm like, what, 60, 70 years old, and I just, I can't learn a new way of thinking. Or, well, I'm just too traditional, and we've been doing this as a church for like 20 plus years, and I just don't understand why God would call us to do something different. Or, I'm too progressive-minded, and I just don't understand how a loving God could condemn someone to hell, so I don't want to believe that. And we try to create our own little mindsets and our own little ideas, but we are called to not conform to the philosophy of this age, to not conform to just old methodologies and ways of how we just used to do things, but we are called to be transformed. And that requires us humbling ourselves and realizing that 
our opinions and what we think are not the end-all be-all, but that we must be submitting to God. So if we are to live out these exhortations for in the remainder of this chapter, then we have to start by first submitting to the Holy Spirit's teaching and guidance on a daily basis in order that we may be molded and shaped to the people God has called us to be. So now we see another new section come up that Paul starts to talk about and discuss. So we move on to this next section in verses 3 through 8, which talks about our role with the new transformed life. And in verse 3, Paul starts by calling the church to examine themselves. He says in verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. So in the CSB translation, it says to think sensibly. If you look at the ESV translation, it says to think with sober judgment. And I love both those phrases because Paul begins this section exhorting and teaching his audience to be the church. But he calls upon each of us to examine ourselves in a rational manner because God has given to each of them in the Church of Romans and to each of us in present-day churches, he has given each of us a part, a role in the body of Christ. So we must not think too highly of ourselves and go beyond the assigned measure God has given us. But on the flip side, we must also not think, not think too lowly of ourselves which is just low self-esteem. Arrogance and low self-esteem have no place in the church. We must think rationally about what God has called us to do. To think too highly or too lowly of oneself just shows that we ultimately are not trusting God's calling and equipping in our life. So we can't walk around the church and be like, oh, I am God's greatest, greatest gift to the church. But we also do not just cower at the back doors like a peasant. Paul sets this attitude straight before he can dive into the spiritual gifts. So let's continue on into verses 4 through 8. Paul says, Now, as we have many parts in one body, and all the parts do not have the same function, in the same way we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching, in teaching. If exhorting, in exhortation. Giving with generosity. Leading with diligence. Showing mercy with cheerfulness. So I want to zoom in on one phrase that he says that really stands out to me. According to the grace given to us. God has assigned all of us a role within the church body. So if we profess that it is through Jesus' perfect life that we are saved, and that is what we have placed our faith in, then we are now in a new life. We are being transformed. And God has assigned to all of us a role in the church body. Just as our human bodies have many parts with differing functions, we too have functions within this body of Christ. 
Let me say that again. We all have a function within the body. It may look different than the person that's sitting next to you. But the spiritual gifts have been distributed to all believers. These gifts, they're not reserved for people solely with seminary degrees or what we deem, you know, the super spiritual Christians. These gifts have been assigned to all believers. But why do we hear random sayings and rules of thumbs in the church like 80% of the work is done by 20% of the congregation? That shouldn't be the rule of thumb because that is not the way God intended the body of Christ to function. Now let's dig into the Bible even more with more teachings on the spiritual gifts. We're going to look at another letter from Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 11. He writes, Now there are different gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different ministries, but the same Lord. And there are different activities, but the same God works all of them in each person. A manifestation of the Spirit has, is given to each person for the common good. To one is given a message of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, a message of knowledge by the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the performing of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, different kinds of tongues. To another, interpretation of tongues. And this is key here. One and the same Spirit is active in all of these, distributing to each person as he wills. Now we jump later into the chapter of chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, verses 27 through 28. Paul continues on. Now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. And God has appointed these in the church. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, next miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, leading, various kind of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all do miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But desire the greater gifts, and I will show you an even greater way. So he says back in verse 5, a manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. So we look at these sections, and we see that it is clear that the gifts are given by God to all believers so that we may function as the body of Christ. It says, for the common good. So, but what is the ultimate purpose of this? What is the end game of this body of Christ? Well, now let's look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. Once again, Paul writes, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. 
But speaking the truth in love, let us grow up in every way into him who is the head, which is Christ. From him the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. So we see these, we see these passages here. And Paul is making the case that we are to be built up into a mature body where the head of that body is Jesus Christ. So as the church grows, we may start off like a toddler. We stumble as we learn to walk. But just as a, t- as a toddler will eventually grow into a teenager, into an adult, they will mature, they will grow, their body will start to get a little more coordinated. It's not so awkward to walk. I don't know about you, but even as an adult, I still stumble and I look goofy when I run and all that stuff. But the thing is, is that we need to acknowledge that as we grow in our faith, there's going to be times where we stumble. There's going to be times where it's not this easy, coordinated effort for the body. But there is grace in that. And so we do not quit and grow frustrated. We continue to learn to walk and grow. Because the goal here is to attain the unity of faith and reach maturity. And that is accomplished via the spiritual gifts given to us. And the key here is that we all must be working together, empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's not in our own strength. It's by the Holy Spirit. It may be uncomfortable. We are imperfect humans. We are being renewed by the Spirit on a daily basis. So there's a lot of growing pains involved. But we must avoid different potential traps that can ensnare us and cause us to stop growing. And one of those potential traps may be the, the culture we live in, where we just shop around for churches based on our preferences. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm not saying you can't, like, check out different churches. Like, once you go to one, you got to stay there. But what I'm getting at is that I say it's a potential trap because it is very easy for us and very comfortable for us to surround ourselves solely with like-minded people until we just find ourselves in an echo chamber where we believe one subset of truth and we're not willing to work with other people. So I want to give an analogy here uh, just to kind of show like what, you know, this potential trap could look like. So I want to talk about kind of two different groups within the church. You know, the first group has a passion for learning sound biblical doctrine and really heady theological concepts. Now, like I said, there's nothing wrong with our different passions within the church. And let's also look at the second group. They have a passion for social justice and community outreach. So let's say, for the sake of analogy, I know Paul says that the head of the body is Christ, but for the sake of analogy, let's say that the the brainiac, like super theological heady people, they are the brain, they are the body. And let's say that the community outreach, the social justice-driven people, they are the limbs that help propel the body. So if we gather as a church into these separate groups, you know, let's say that all the people gather together with the love for sound biblical doctrine. Well, what happens if they're not exercising their limbs? So, you know, we're kind of like a toddler. We're growing. So we're just kind of crawling along. But, like, if our limbs start to atrophy because we're not using them and we become very top-heavy in the head, we just kind of fall over like this. And then we're just like, 
stuck in this place. And the problem is, is that, sure, while we're stuck in this place, we may be able to discuss among our members about soteriology and eschatology and all those grand theological concepts, but we're not getting anywhere here. We're just stuck debating. Now, likewise, on the other hand, I don't want to make fun of just one group of people here, but on the other hand, if we gather as a church with a passion for community outreach, with a passion for social justice, yet we have no sound biblical doctrine, then we become like a child who just walks up to people in the store and they're just like, hey, hey, did I tell you about my day? I like, I like apples and my mom's taking me grocery shopping and I hope we get candy because I love candy. And sure, they're getting out and they're talking with people, but they're just kind of prattling on about nonsense. So here's the thing. We need both. We need both groups to work together for the body to grow. We need all people to be exercising their spiritual gifts. This teaching is so difficult because it requires participation from all of us. So how do we effectively do this? Let's go back to verses 1 and 2 again. Are we presenting ourselves as living sacrifices to God? Or are we bowing down to some other God? Are we being transformed by the renewing of our minds? Or are we merely conforming to this world? These verses, they go against our natural inclinations to live for ourselves. Even as I wrote this sermon the past couple weeks, I realized how difficult it was for me to commit time to prepare a sermon and encourage all of us in the truth, when honestly, I would much rather just throw myself into my hobbies and my comforts. It's so easy to serve the God of self, which makes it all the more crucial for all of us that we meditate and we apply daily verses 1 and 2. It's through verses 1 and 2 that if we apply this concept, we can then start working on verses 3 through 8. But this body of Christ, these spiritual gifts, it requires all of us. We can't just all separate and be like, okay, well, you know, let's have like, um, you know, let's have all the, the tulip Calvinists over here and like, oh wait, you can't be in that group. You believe in, uh, you believe in complementarian views on marriage and, oh, well, you send your kids to private school or, oh, you went to a Baptist church or like, and we start to divide up based on all these man-made labels. Now, once again, I'm not trying to say that different theological concepts and views are wrong. But there's a clear line here between what biblical mandates are and what personal convictions may be. And so we should not divide up based on whether one parent decides to send their kids to uh, Christian school, one parent decides to homeschool, and one parent decides to send their kids to public school. We all must continue to work together, acknowledging that, yes, we may have different convictions on things, we may hold different views, but we are still united by our faith in Jesus Christ, and that doctrine cannot change. Now, I am not up here trying to preach some grand unified theory where, oh, everything goes. We can just believe what we want as long as we get along. No, there are sound biblical doctrines we must follow, which is why we need doctrinally based people in the church guiding us. However, we must also realize that there are different things we're not always all going to agree on. And that's why we must be very cautious to maneuver and grow and mature as we all participate and cooperate. 
So at this point, we see a, a third section to this chapter as Paul now transitions from the body of Christ into what the fruit of the transformed life ought to look like. So we now dive into verses 9 through 21. Now, in this last set of verses, it's a fairly extensive list regarding the behaviors and characteristics of the Christians. I'm not going to give a full detailed synopsis on every verse, but I want to encourage all of us here to read these verses and to desire to grow in these areas. As you read through this section, every single command, I want you to think, what does this verse look like from a conformed worldly mindset versus a transformed godly mindset? So let's just read through it right now. He starts off, let love be without hypocrisy. Other translations say, let love be sincere or love must be genuine. A transformed mindset when it comes to love seeks to live out Jesus's command to his disciples in John 13, 34 through 35. Jesus says in those verses, I give you a new command Love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Do we have this kind of love for one another? Our love is not conditional. It's not based on what a person can provide for us, whether they can advance our business or our social media followings, or whether they can be some grand financial benefactor to our church. That would reduce us to superficiality, and we are not called to that. We must be a genuine, loving community of believers. And this command is crucial because the world should see this kind of love modeled in us because our love is different from the rest of the world. So we should stand out from the world when it comes to our love for one another. We do not conform to the world's way of behaving. And it, it, when we read this chapter, when we read the rest of these verses, it's only going to get more challenging from here. So we have to start with sincere, genuine, unhypocritical love for one another. So let's continue on into the second half of verse 9. Let's keep reading. Paul continues on says, Detest evil, cling to what is good. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Take the lead in honoring one another. Do not lack diligence in zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. Share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. I love and hate that last verse. <laughs> I need to be honest. Every time I read that verse, I'm convicted by it. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. My ego constantly seeks to be promoted and validated. And what better way to put myself on 24-7 display than social media? In the past year, though, I have had to heavily scale back on social media because it was feeding into my insecurities. 
I would grow anxious as I would scroll through all these posts from people about their their weekend hikes and vacations, their workouts, their home remodels, their job accomplishments, just all those life updates. And I'm just going to be real here, like, let's be honest, it's never a good idea to scroll through Facebook and Instagram and all those spots when you're just sitting on your butt. Come on, let's be real. Like, you're sitting there doing nothing, watching other people do stuff, and you're saying, oh, man, like, I just, I need to get out and do something. Like, that's never a good way to fight insecurities. So then I would push myself. Oh, well, I got to go accomplish something. In my quest to be validated and get likes, I would just go off and do things. I jumped into the online political arena in the 2016 election. I declared my support for the third party and then proceeded to argue with both sides of the political aisle about their political ideologies. What did I gain from all this? You know, I spent years trying to validate myself, trying to have these haughty opinions and ideas about just my own ideologies and reflections. What did I gain from all of it? Honestly, just another barricade for my fragile ego to hide behind. See, and I don't want to get too ranty here, but when we go back to verses 1 and 2 and we see what a transformed mindset ought to look like, we shouldn't see infighting within the church as we did in 2020. Yes, 2020 was rough for pretty much every single person. People lost jobs because the economy shut down. People lost loved ones because of COVID. People went through the year, maybe not getting COVID, but getting other illnesses that ravaged their body. A lot happened. There was a lot of pain. And my question here, did we weep? Did we mourn with each other? Or did we just side up with each other and, oh, well, this person over here is conservative, so I'll mourn with them over the loss of their job and blame the government. Oh, well, this person over here, well, they're a, they promote masks and they lost a loved one because of COVID, so I need to join with them and promote the mask movement. But did we come together as a church, regardless of our stances on certain topics, and mourn when we were hurting? When something good happened, did we rejoice with each other? Or did we divide up based on our preferences, and get haughty and arrogant. Paul says there is no place for that in the church. Yes, there are times when we need to rise up against what is evil. But when it comes to certain things that are merely personal preferences, those should not be creating division in the body of Christ. We all have to remember, we come from different backgrounds. We come from, we, we are made differently. We have different mindsets. We have different ways of thinking. We have different just strengths and weaknesses. I mean, even when we talk about like the biology of the brain, like we divide people up into like left-brained and right-brained people. I forget which one's which, but one of them's kind of like more artistic and creative and the other one's more like logical and reasoning. And so many times it's easy for us just to get with all the logical people or just to get with all the creative people. And we divide up and like, oh, well, this person thinks like me. Oh, that person thinks like me. But we're called to go beyond that and to unite in our faith in Jesus Christ. We're called to unite in the Holy Spirit. 
And we can't allow ourselves to excuse ourselves. Oh, well, I'm just, I'm really creative and artsy, and I just don't understand, like, some of the logic Paul's presenting. Or I'm really logical and reasonable. I just, I just don't get this whole emotional thing about God. We need to come together because the truth is we need each other. I mean, if my wife and I thought the exact same way, like, we'd be really strong in certain areas, but man, we would just, like, bomb in other areas. So we need to be able to build off of each other's strengths and weaknesses. Just like in the church, we need to be able to build off of each other's strengths and weaknesses. Because there are some people who are very well equipped in some gifts, and there are others who are equipped in other gifts. And we need to come together, and we need to work together. We live in an age of information where so much data is right at our fingertips. And we use this all too easily just to prop up our own egos. We fear looking common, so we constantly post about exciting things happening in our life. We fear looking unproductive, so we constantly post about our jobs, our hobbies, our exercise. We fear looking stupid, so we constantly engage in debates with one another and seek to put others down in order to win our mental, our, our, our debate. It offers us nothing but a temporary retreat for our egos. And as Christians, we are called to a higher standard. Now, I'm not saying social media is wrong. Just as I said, like, over the past year, I've been convicted of how I was using it for my own, for my own promotion, my own self-validation. And the truth is, God worked in me over the past year a lot. And it was tough. You know, there were weeks where I had to completely disconnect, where I only was using Facebook Messenger just to keep up with um, the, the men's group and some stuff. And yes, I, I do still use Facebook. I, I still have that stuff, you know. But the thing is, is now when I go into it, I have to evaluate my mindset. Am I in a stable, healthy spot to be able to go online check what's going on in the men's group or what's going on in the church or any other groups I'm involved in or just see like what a few of my friends have been up to lately that I haven't caught up with. Or if I get online, am I just going to immediately have my emotions rise up within me and I got to get on my platform? Because if I'm not feeling healthy, then I don't go on anymore. And like I said, I'm not trying to say that having Facebook, having Twitter, any of this stuff is wrong. But as Christians, we are held accountable to our attitudes, our words, and our actions. And we must constantly be aware, especially in the days of social media, we must constantly be aware how our attitudes, words, and actions are and how they affect others, especially within the church. We must not grow haughty and create division in the body. So we must be aware, we must be submitting to the Holy Spirit who is renewing our minds every day. So in conclusion to this entire chapter, once again, this is a lot to try to digest in 30 minutes, but I encourage all of us to meditate on this entire chapter. Seek to differentiate between what is the world's way and what is God's way. None of this can be done in our own strength. It can't. I know, I'm a very self-dependent person. I love just relying on myself. But as I read this chapter, the more I've studied, the more I've tried to apply it, 
So many times I've just hit that brick wall and my stubbornness just keeps saying, I can run right through this. But we can't do any of this in our own strength. It's only through the Holy Spirit. And that's where our hope is. The Holy Spirit dwells within us, empowers us, and equips us to live out these commands. So let's remember that a transformed life in Christ is accomplished through a continuous renewing of our minds each and every day. And through this process, there is hope because we will all grow as individual Christians and members of the church body. And God's glory will be magnified further for the world to see that we are different. So I just encourage all of us here. This is tough. This is challenging. I myself was so convicted as I was preparing this. But let's not just put up our shields, put on our, our masks of our heart and souls. Let's get real and genuine. Let's seek where God is calling us, what he has equipped us to do. If he is convicting us in certain areas, let's not allow our egos to cause us to stumble, but let's repent and let's seek to grow as the church body, both locally as Mercy Hill and globally as the entire church. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your word, just the daily teachings from it. It's not just something we learn from on Sundays, but Lord, we can learn and grow every single day. And God, as we read through Romans 12, it's challenging, it's convicting. But Lord, there is hope because you are a God of grace and mercy. You do not just give up on us the moment we stumble, but you are still working within us, knitting us together into a mature body. So, Lord, I pray that you would work within all of us, within me, that we would all just transform, be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we would listen to you and obey you. And, Lord, help us in our struggles, in our human strivings, Lord, that we would just rely on you in those times, that we would submit to you. Guide us and lead us, Lord, for you are the one who empowers and equips us. In your name, amen.